Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So we ended last week at talking about Mars, and today we're going to pick back up because apparently Mars is truly the place to be these days. Let's start with a super quick update on Ingenuity. While it's still attached to the rover, the helicopter has deployed its four legs and is preparing for the five-inch drop it will need to endure in order to reach the Martian ground. So five inches doesn't sound very much, but if, for instance, it were to fall over or something like that, that could be a big deal. Um, and so it is going to be another one of those sort of white-knuckled moments when we get there. And so the helicopter has been being monitored by Watson, one of the cameras on Percy's robotic arm controls. So Watson is part of the Sherlock uh, device. And again, the idea is to drop the helicopter and then quickly drive away from it. Once we cut the cord with perseverance and drop those final five inches to the surface, we want to have our big friend drive away as quickly as possible so we can get the sun's rays on our solar panel and begin recharging our batteries, explained Bob Ballaram, Mars Helicopter Chief Engineer at JPL, in a statement. And so, if all goes well with the drop, we could see a flight as early as the 11th of May, I'm sorry, of April. Uh, and that's actually pushed out a couple of days. Uh, the original date was going to be the 8th, um, but I think they're just trying to make sure that everything is going to be perfect and that all of the origami-like unfolding that needed to happen is happening properly. And so if there is a flight on the 11th, the data would arrive on Earth on the 12th. So hopefully in another couple of weeks, we will have data from Ingenuity. And that will be amazing. Um, because again, first flight on another planet. Um, so very exciting. And so we've been talking a lot about Perseverance lately. But Curiosity is still going strong. The veteran rover has been on the planet for an amazing 10 years at this point. The rover recently sent back a selfie in front of Mont Mercure, a 20-foot-tall rock formation inside of its home territory, Gale Crater. Not only did it capture a mosaic of itself, it also produced a stereoscopic view of the outcrop. Taking this kind of mosaic can help us better view what's going on with the outcrop and better be able to um, check out what's what it's made of. It allows researchers to get a better idea of the 3D geometry of Mount Mercu's sedimentary Mont Mercu's sedimentary layers, according to NASA. And so Curiosity has finished looking at its initial terrain, which was called the clay-bearing unit, and has been moving slowly up the slopes of the three-mile-tall Mount Sharp 
to the next area to explore, called the sulfate-bearing unit, with Mont-Mercure representing a transitional zone. Now, such an area may help us learn more about how, how Mars became such a unfortunately desolate desert wasteland. Now, by the way, you may have noticed that the mountain curiosity is rather inching up, is actually three miles high. Without water weathering, plate tectonics, and with lower gravity, in addition to the only real weathering agent being dust, the planet has a lot of super high peaks, especially formed by early volcanism, including, of course, the famous Olympus Mons, which is one of the highest peaks in the solar system. Um, so I believe it's the highest volcano, but I think we did find a really, really, really high peak on one of the moons. And so I'm not sure if it still qualifies as the highest peak in the solar system. And so the rover is not just taking pictures. The rover is also continuing its sampling mission. It recently completed its 30th drill session and created a hole now called Nontron after Nontronite, a type of clay mineral found near Nontron, France, which is why I've been pronouncing everything slightly French, uh, with, of course, my terrible American accent. But so all of this area is named after places in France. Once the material was drilled out, a bit of the pulverized rock dust was loaded into the rover's onboard chemistry lab for analysis. And Curiosity is not only interested in the terrain, but also in the sky. Gale Crater is entering its cloudy season, and the rover has been capturing some rather beautiful pictures of clouds in the sky. The next move for the rover is to turn around and back toward the outcrop as far as it can. This will allow for a rare opportunity for the use of the DAN, or Dynamic Albedo of Neurons device, which detects the amount of hydrogen, a sign of water, in the vicinity of the rover. Normally, it can only do this on the ground, but having this outcrop affords them a rare opportunity to use this instrument, which is on the back of the rover. So while we're all extremely excited about the new kid on the block, we should not forget that Curiosity has been working hard for 10 years on the planet, expanding our understanding and taking some really artistic and scientific pictures. And it keeps going strong. Um, so yeah, there was a really beautiful black and white picture of clouds over um, the uh, outcrop, and it was just it was very beautiful. Um, and so, yeah. And of course, full of science as well. But it doesn't hurt to get some artistic uh, merit in there, even when you're focusing on the science. So it turns out there are a lot of clouds on Mars, despite it having a thin atmosphere. Now, we've mentioned the ones over Gale Crater, but let's talk about the weird Arja Mons elongated cloud. This is a cloud that has been appearing in the Martian atmosphere for years, and now an ESA probe is unlocking its secrets. 
The cloud is a long, bright water ice cloud that stretches from the Arja Mons volcano all the way to Olympus Mons. The cloud appears every year around Mars's southern solstice and forms and dissipates for 80 days or more. The challenge has been to properly observe the cloud because it's difficult to capture from orbit. However, ESA's Mars Express Orbiter has managed to get a good look using the Visual Monitoring Camera, VMC, known by its nickname, the Mars Webcam. Now, the VMC was actually initially charged with finding the Beagle 2 lander, a British Mars lander declared lost and thought to have crashed. I remember when that happened. However, recently, the VMC was reclassified as a camera for science. Jorge Hernandez Bernal, an astronomer at the University of the Basque Country in Spain and lead author of this new study of the cloud, who is also part of a long-term project studying the cloud, said in a statement. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Repurposing the VMC has successfully enabled us to understand this transient cloud in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. ESA's Mars Express project scientist Dmitry Titov said about the VMC in the same statement. The camera allows the researchers to track clouds, monitor dust storms, probe clouds and dust structures in the Martian atmosphere, explore changes in the planet's polar ice caps, and more, he added. The research combined data from the VMC, as well as other instruments on Mars Express, data from the MAVEN, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the Viking 2 missions, and the Mars Orbiter mission from the Indian Space Research Organization. So truly an international project. We were especially excited when we dug into Viking 2's observations from the 70s, Bernal said. We found that this huge, fascinating cloud had already been partially imaged that long ago, and now we're exploring it in detail. They found that, at its largest, the cloud measures some 1,119 miles long and 93 miles across. This is a very big cloud. It's an earth like a mountain and is the largest cloud ever to be seen on the planet. The cloud is dynamic forming, is dynamic forming before sunrise and then expanding for two and a half hours at a breakneck speed that can reach over 373 miles per hour before it stops expanding. It then detaches from its origin point and stretches even more before evaporating in the late morning. There are no comparable phenomena on Earth. Here, orographic clouds are smaller and less dynamic. The scientists were lucky that this particular orbiter can scan the area where the cloud forms in the early morning, as many other orbiters cannot reach the area until the Martian afternoon, when, you know, the cloud has already dissipated. 
So it this is just another crazy, wonderful thing that we are finding out about Mars. Um, it is a very cool place. I cannot deny that. It's got some beautiful terrain, some really fantastic mountains uh, and volcanoes. It's got all sorts of things going for it, except for the fact that, you know, little things like there's no oxygen and there's no magnetosphere or atmosphere in order to prevent you from basically being irradiated by the sun uh, very quickly. Um, though it is a little bit further away from the sun, so it would take a little bit longer, probably. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a little bit of sunscreen and um, an oxygen tank are probably not going to do it for you on Mars. And so it's definitely going to be a challenge. But I think that if we do send people there um, and we do set up a colony We'll at least get some really, really, really cool postcards <laughs> um, because there are just some really breathtakingly beautiful vistas um, on the planet that we have been getting pictures of from the various rovers over the years. I, I'm just blown away that Curiosity has been on Mars for 10 years. If you had asked me that, I... to. If you had asked me that as a true-false question, I probably would have said false. It is amazing how fast time flies. But luckily, it's still going strong. Okay. And we are also very lucky that the VMC has been reclassified as a science instrument, because it sounds like it can do some lot, some really good science. Now, we've got one more story from Mars. Last but not least for our Mars segment is a story about NASA's InSight lander. Apparently, it has detected two strong, clear quakes originating in a location of Mars called Cerberus Fosse. This is a location where two strong quakes were detected earlier in the mission, according to a statement from NASA. The new quakes had magnitudes of 3.3 and 3.1, with the previous quakes, from two years ago, having magnitudes of 3.6 and 3.5. InSight has actually recorded over 500 quakes at this point, but these four have been the clearest and the best candidates for probing the interior of the planet. And so, as noted, Mars doesn't have tectonic plates, but does have volcanism. And these new quakes add to the evidence that Cerberus Fosse is the center of seismic activity. And actually, that lack of tectonic plates and that abundance of volcanism, especially earlier, um, even though there is still obviously uh, signs that there is more volcanism that's still happening, a lot of that is how you get those incredibly high mountains, because unlike when you have um, tectonic movement, the land is not moving over that volcanic hotspot. It's just staying there. And so the mountains and the volcanoes are allowed to continue to grow and grow and grow. Uh, 
and especially in the um, lower uh, gravity of Mars. Over the course of the mission, we've seen two different types of Mars quakes, one that is more moon-like and the other more Earth-like, said Taichi Kawamura of France's Institut de Physique de Globe de Paris, which helped provide InSight's seismometer and distributes its data along with the Swiss Research University ETH Zurich. Interestingly, Kawamura continued, all four of these large quakes, which come from Cerebus Fosse, are Earth-like. Earth-like quakes have waves that travel more directly through the crust, while moon quakes tend to be very scattered. Most Mars quakes fall somewhere in between. All four quakes also occurred during the Martian northern summer. This was already suspected to be a good time to listen for quakes, as there would be less wind. But alas, last winter, they were not able to detect any quakes. Or last uh, northern summer, I should say, there. It's wonderful to once again observe Mars quakes after a long period of recording wind noise, said John Clinton, a seismologist who leads Insight's Mars Quake service at ETH Zurich. One Martian year on, we are now much faster at characterizing seismic activity on the Red Planet. One of the new phases of the mission, recently extended for another two years, is to try to bury the cable that connects the, seis the seismometer to the Insight lander. The temperature can fluctuate wildly, um, where it is. So from extremely cold to rather warm, um, cause again, no atmosphere. And so basically it's really just down to the vagaries of how much sunlight is hitting the area. And so because of that, they think the cable might be expanding and shrinking, causing popping noises and spikes in the data, which is of course not good when you're trying to look at uh, basically sound data. And so they are currently using the lander's scoop to pour Martian soil onto the seismometer's wind and thermal shield in order to allow it to trickle down onto the cable. They will move on to trying to bury the rest of the cable in future, using the soil as an insulator against the temperature fluctuations. The mission will actually have to take a break soon, however, as the solar panels are covered in dust despite the wind. The team hopes that conditions will improve after July as the planet begins to approach the sun again. So, fingers crossed that everything will work out and those uh, solar panels will clear off and they'll be able to get some more sun and we will get more data from the lander, which would be very exciting. And so, because again, obviously, it'll be one of those NASA missions that just keeps going. All right, we are going to uh, fly back to Earth now. And 
we're going to do something different for a little bit today. It's going to, it's going to be a mixed bag, but, um, as you know, I don't talk about climate news very much on this show because I try and focus on the positive, but there is a little bit of positive today. Um, and so, uh, again, it is tempered by some reality and I don't want to not temper it with reality because I don't want to act like this is just in a vacuum, perfectly happy, and everything is going to be okay because of it. Anyways, let's get to it, shall we? Uh, so right here in Massachusetts, the governor has just signed into law one of the nation's most ambitious and sweeping climate bills. The Commonwealth will target net zero carbon emissions for 2050. The law aims for emissions limits in 2030 to be 50% below those of 1990 levels and a 75% cut by 2040, with five-year incremental limits. In order to do this, Mass will invest heavily in offshore wind power, push cities and towns to adopt a net zero building code, and targets and to create targets for adoption of electric vehicles, uh, to construct and, um, to, uh, champion new charming charging stations, excuse me, and energy storage. Now, they project that they will be able to eliminate 85% of all carbon emissions by 2050. For the remaining carbon, they'll need to plant trees, develop direct air capture of carbon dioxide, or develop other ways to sequester carbon rather than eliminate its emission. So basically, um, the difference between eliminating emissions and sequestering is that if you are sequestering, you're actually taking uh, carbon that has already been emitted but you are then putting it into something that doesn't harm the atmosphere. So, for instance, into the growing of trees or into a um, sequestration unit that actually then converts it into something that, again, doesn't actually reach the atmosphere because what you're trying to do is you are trying to keep everything out of the actual atmosphere. Now, the bill has been bounced back and forth between the legislature and the governor several times, with the governor being lobbied hard, especially by construction and building organizations. And so uh, it was only once the bill was pushed back to the governor with a veto-proof majority of Democrats supporting the bill that he agreed to sign it, which is why I haven't mentioned his name and don't plan to give him credit. <laughs> uh, you know, you all, everybody knows who the governor is. <laughs> Uh, but obviously I don't share, uh, very much of my, uh, politics or, uh, love of the state with him. So, <laughs> and I think that this is very much something that was pushed by the Democratic, uh, legislature and not the governor. And so the bill seeks to reduce pollution in six broad sectors, electricity, 
transportation, residential buildings, commercial and industrial buildings, industrial processes, and natural gas distribution. Wind, nuclear, hydropower, and landfill methane sources of power will count toward net zero goals, but not biomass burning. And so that has been another uh, sort of uh, red flag argument with a lot of people. I know there was a big um, kerfuffle in Western Mass over a potential biomass um, energy producing uh, outfit. And I think they eventually just gave up. Um, don't quote me on that. I might be wrong, um, but I feel like they gave up because I haven't heard about it in a long time. And I think people would still be protesting if it had gone through. Building codes will be encouraged to push for net zero, high-performance buildings with better ceiling and insulations. Appliances will now have to meet California efficiency standards. New incentives will most likely be offered for installing heat pumps. And again, these were the provisions with some of the hardest uh, fights against them. Um, and so I get it. Uh, you know, it is going to cost more to do that sort of thing, but the short-term costs versus the long-term costs, um, you know, unfortunately you have to pay more upfront, but you get to keep having a planet. So a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B here, um, unfortunately is really what it comes down to is, do you want to pay a little more for, uh, you know, insulating your house or do you want to have, uh, you know, six months of summer, uh, in Massachusetts? And so, um, I think that it's pretty clear that we need to do this. Um, you know, I'm not really, uh, excited about the possibility of having to have house prices go up. Um, I would like to own a house someday. Um, and so, uh, this will make it a little bit harder and more expensive proper, probably, but it's, it's absolutely needed. Now, unfortunately, and this is a big, unfortunately for me, the new law doesn't allow cities to ban new natural gas hookups, despite the known dangers and the recent disasters, including one in the Merrimack Valley that led to the destruction of over 40 homes. And, um, one of my best friend's late mother's, um, or his late mother, I should say, um, she passed away recently. Uh, she actually had to be evacuated for her, from her home for several days. And, um, it was very scary. And so the fact that they were not able to, uh, pass that ban is very frustrating because, uh, natural gas has gen, has been, in my uh, humble opinion, a general boondoggle um, and did not actually uh, mitigate climate change as much as it was uh, touted to do when we were first uh, really pushed into it uh, a decade or so ago. Um, but anyways... One of the most important parts of the bill, in my opinion, is the use of designated environmental justice communities, defined as those who already suffer disproportionately from pollution. 
new scrutiny will be given to any projects that might add to the overall burden of the pollution in those areas. And so I think that would be really good to be able to say, look, these people have already dealt with a bunch of pollution and we're not going to allow you to do something in here that is going to increase the amount of pollution. I think that's really amazing. Um, of course, we'll have to see how well it's enforced, but on paper, it's great. Other good provisions include increased funding for the Mass Clean Energy Center, uh, which will be able to train more workers for clean energy jobs. It will it creates new programs to boost the adoption of solar power for low-income households. And finally, it includes new regulations for municipal utilities, which, again, were previously exempt from such legislation. Because, of course, money talks in our political uh, situation as it currently stands. And uh, utilities have a lot of money and a lot of lobbyists and um, so the fact that they will now have new regulations is exciting. I don't know how tough those regulations are going to be, but even a little bit is good. So this is a definite start. We'll see how things progress, as I've been saying, and what deals are made, but it at least signals that the Commonwealth is serious about mitigating climate change. And it comes at a time when we're even more aware of the impacts of the environment of, on the environment of burning fossil fuel. Yale's Matthew Kotchin recently published a paper outlining several aspects of the externa, externalities associated with fossil fuel production. Externalities, or externalized costs, are costs not directly associated with the production and purchase of a product. For fossil fuels, externalities include the money needed to mitigate environmental damage from mining and waste left by coal and uh, coal especially, but also oil and other um, kinds of fossil fuels. The medical costs associated with particulates and toxic materials from coal and fuel exhaust and other environmental and health factors. He calculated that the externalized costs add up to a $62 billion subsidy, subsidy each year in the U.S. Additionally, he found that if coal was forced to deal with its extern externalities, the industry would potentially go broke. Using a complex series of calculations, he found that consumers, quote-unquote, are the net beneficiaries due to reduced prices for fuel in general, though there are serious caveats. While we pay lower prices for fuel, we end up with the costs for environmental damage and medical bills for pollution-related maladies, such as asthma and other respiratory issues, just to name a very obvious one off the top of my head. And a lot of the consumers are actually other corporations not involved in the direct production of fossil fuels. Again, the people most affected by this cycle are those at the lowest echelons of the consumer ladder. 
Paradoxically, a rise in true costs would disproportionately affect them, and yet they suffer the most environmental and medical costs, while the wealthiest are those using the most energy. And so the need to transition away from these types of fuels has never been more well documented. All right. And on that note, we're going to take a little break. We're going to do some PSAs and some show promos. And then when we come back, we are going to switch gears and talk about particle physics. Fun. Actually, really enjoy particle physics physics because everything is just so weird and counterintuitive sometimes. Uh, it's not all weird, but a lot of it is weird and counterintuitive. And I really like that sort of science. <laughs> Call me weird. Um, so yes. Uh, please do come back and, uh, or stay tuned and we will be right back. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, 
it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so, as I mentioned, we're going to transition to talking about physics. And so I wanted to start tonight with a slightly older story that I have been meaning to kind of sandwich in somewhere, but just didn't get to it until this week. Researchers have uncovered the secrets of particles rotating around the Earth at near light speed. The electrons come from solar storms and get trapped in an orbit around the planet. Researchers from the GFZ German Center for Geosciences in Potsdam have discovered that they only accelerate to near light speed when the plasma density of the Van Allen belts are low. It's important to know more about these particles because, when traveling so fast, they can penetrate satellites and damage electronic equipment, passing through shielding that protects against other charged particles from solar storms. And so, basically... Uh, there's a certain amount of expected energy that these particles will have, and the uh, shielding actually protects against those. But if you uh, severely speed up these particles, they have enough energy to go through, uh, which is not good because then they wreak havoc. And so, uh, as mentioned, the electrons orbit in the two Van Allen radiation belts. And so basically, these are toruses of charged particles that circle the Earth. The belts extend from around 400 miles to more than 36,000 miles above the surface of the Earth and are instrumental in protecting the planet from charged particles ejected from the sun. But they also have a complex interaction with solar storms that is still not fully understood. The new ultra relativistic energies, those extremely fast electrons, were detected by a pair of probes launched in 2012 by NASA to study the Van Allen belts. Researchers had suspected that the particles received a first burst of speed from the sun and then a second burst inside the belt. However, the new research suggests that they only need the right plasma conditions in order to reach their near-light speed acceleration. This study shows that electrons in the Earth's radiation belt can be promptly accelerated locally to ultra-relativistic energies if the conditions of the plasma environment, plasma waves, and temporarily low plasma density are right, study co-author Yuri Spritz, a space physicist at GFC Potsdam, said in a statement. And so researchers had already suspected that the particles could be affected by electromagnetic waves known as chorus waves. But the new research shows that the waves can only accelerate the particles when plasma density is less than 10 particles per cubic centimeter. Writing in the journal Science Advances, 
the researchers note that the density of the plasma is generally between 50 and 100 particles per cubic centimeter. But when that density dips, the electrons draw on the chorus waves and boost their kinetic energy for, from a few hundred thousand electron volts to 7 million electron volts. Uh, and just for comparison, CERN's linear accelerator, which was used until 2020, accelerated protons up to 50 million electron volts. And so the low density of the plasma seems to allow for a more efficient transfer of energy from the chorus waves to the electrons. But a drop in density so large does not happen often. During observations taken in 2015 with the Van Allen probes, the low density conditions recorded only a quote-unquote handful of times. They think that the thinning may have to do with convection currents in the Van Allen belts, with hotter, lighter materials rising and colder, denser materials sinking. But this is currently only a hypothesis. As with most things, more research will be required in order to determine the cause of the thinning. And speaking of CERN, scientists have finally tracked down evidence of an, ex of an elusive particle, first hypothesized in the early 1970s. The Oderon isn't actually a particle. Rather, it's a product of the collision of two protons, or a proton and an antiproton, consisting of three gluons, which are exchanged between the two particles when they do not annihilate one another. So, obviously, you're smashing atoms, and sometimes they uh, annihilate one another, but occasionally they sort of glance off of one another. And so... During these kinds of high-impact glancing blows, those gluons are supposed to form. Now, quarks are the particles that make, us, make up bigger particles like protons and neutrons. Somewhat unsurprisingly, gluons like to stick together. When they are in sets of even numbers, they're called pomerons. And when they're in odd numbers, they're called, well, otterons. Despite being rather obvious, a, obviously a thing that can and should exist according to the calculations. Until now, researchers had data, never had data strong enough to explicitly say that they had detected any otteron groupings. The new research has a level of statistical significance of five sigma, which means that basically you can be 99999 nines all the way down, uh, sure, that the discovery is really what is expected. Um, and so detecting particles in an accelerator doesn't just mean that you take pictures of the object. You need to comb through mountains of data produced when the particles collide and their component parts are scattered and caught by detectors in the collider. Now, you may have seen illustrations of the splatter patterns created by such collisions, but that is definitely not the whole story. By mountains, I mean that if you transferred the data to CDs and stacked them, you will cover more than the distance between the Earth and the Moon, says Christophe Rion, a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Kansas, who is part of the detection team. You are collecting a huge number of data. 
And then you have to do some analysis to identify among all this data what is interesting to you. And so researchers have to sift through data from millions and millions of collisions before finding the right pattern. If they didn't find the Adiron, then they'd have to come up with another theory about physics and how particles interact. So luckily, the accelerator runs were done uh, before COVID-19 hit, and so the researchers could comb through the data remotely. Now, unfortunately, this means that they haven't been able to actually really enjoy the moment properly. With the COVID situation, it's a bit tricky. Everybody is working from home and so on, Royal noted. But when we are back to normal, I think we deserve a party. I think they deserve a party too. <laughs> and so the research involved comparing two data sets, one from the now-ended D0 experiment at Fermilab in Illinois, and others from the Large Hadron Collider's totem experiment, which took place in 2015, 2019, and 2020, again, right before the official lockdown. The D0 experiment looked at proton-antiproton collisions, while the CERN work looked at proton-proton collisions. Being able to compare data from the two colliders was what allowed them to have such certainty. The team suspected they detected the particle last year, but out of an abundance of caution, they asked independent researchers to check the work before publishing. The Adiron is a solid prediction of the theory of strong interactions made almost half a century ago, said physicist, physicist Yuri Kovchevkov from the Ohio State University, who was not involved in the work. At the same time, it has been avoiding experimental detection for decades. The new D0 and totem results, if it holds, is likely to indicate that the Adiron has at last been found. And so, of course, this isn't the end of the story. More experiments will need to be done to confirm the results and to continue to probe the mysteries of this product of violent collisions between particles. A new accelerator, the Electron-Ion Collider, is scheduled to be built in New York and to open in the early 2030s. And so this might be able to give us more answers. It's not something which we close and say, we are happy, finished, done, Kovachev said. In physics, when you find something new, usually it's a door which opens completely new domains. And of course, CERN is a very busy place. Um, I do, I have to admit, I always do feel a bit of melancholia when I talk about CERN um, because I'm still rather salty um, and disappointed in the fact that uh, we killed funding for the super colliding superconductor uh, in Texas. Um, you know, that was something that was happening when I was a uh, high schooler and as a lifelong nerd, I was very excited about it, and um, I'm still sad to this day that uh, Europe is where all of the really um, good uh, particle physics is happening. Not that there's anything wrong with it happening in Europe, and thank goodness they had the wherewithal and the foresight to build it 
uh, to completion. So, um, and apparently they're going to be building some new accelerators uh, in America, but I still am just very sad about the super colliding superconductor. Anyways, let's continue to talk about CERN. Um, And so our next story uh, took place back in July of 2018, when a team of physicists used a new technique to slow down antimatter so they could get a better look at it. They had 10 days of observations, but those 10 days were the accumulation of 10 years of work by an international collaboration called Alpha, which oversaw the design and construction of a high-powered laser. The laser setup was able to slow down the antimatter to the point where it was brought almost to absolute zero, the state at which all movement ceases. Now, we've probably all heard about matter-antimatter annihilation. We were just talking about proton-proton. I'm sorry, proton-antiproton collisions earlier. And so I know that there's always been this sort of sci-fi thing that if they hit, that there's, you know, huge amounts of energy that are released, and it's basically like a giant bomb. The amounts of matter and antimatter being produced at CERN are tiny and they pose no threat to humanity. Um, You know, if we were going to have had something happen, it would have happened long ago. Um, So all those people who worried about, you know, CERN creating black holes and things like that, it's just, it's silly. Um, And so uh, we've known about antimatter for 93 years, and thankfully we've gotten better at studying and experimenting with it. In its second phase, the Alpha Project is now experimenting with entry with anti-hydrogen atoms, a positron orbiting an antiproton. Anti-hydrogen was first captured in 2011 and is ideal because, well, it's the simplest anti-atom. Slowing down the motion of anti-atoms allows us to perform more precise measurements on its properties. In daily life, you can imagine things moving fast are harder to see than things moving slowly. Makoto Fujiwara, a particle physicist with Canada's Triumph Particle Accelerator team, explained, The same thing happens in quantum physics. The more time you have to observe a certain property, the more precise your measurement. And so, when trapped, anti-hydrogen, anti-hydrogen, I don't know why that's so hard to say, moves at about 200 miles per hour. And so the team bombarded the anti-atoms with photons shot from a laser. Once the photon hits the atoms, it excites the atoms, but it also changes their motion, said Takamasa Momose, an atomic molecular spectroscopist affiliated with the project and who built the laser. What we did was we controlled the light such that we only excited atoms that were approaching the photons and de-accelerated them. The process is called laser cooling, and it allowed the researchers to slow down the anti-atoms by an order of magnitude and in turn reduce their temperature. Researchers are especially keen to study antimatter in order to better understand, frankly, where it all went. Presumably, there would have been an almost equal amount of matter and antimatter at the beginning of the universe. 
And so, um, you know, that's kind of a big deal. It's a big issue with what happened to all of the antimatter. Um, it is one of the giant, giant questions of our uh, understanding of the universe. We just, we literally have no idea uh, why there isn't more antimatter in the universe. Um, and so, yeah. All right. So let's keep talking about CERN, because again, CERN is the place to be these days. One of the current projects at CERN is called Alpha-G, which is looking into how gravity affects antimatter. What we'll do is charge an anti-hydrogen atom and see how it falls down, and see if it's exactly the same as normal matter, Fujiwara said. If an atom is hot, if they're moving very fast, then you release them where that then when you release them, they go everywhere. We can't see what gravity is doing. But if you make things very slow, they react to gravity more sensitively. And so another project in the works is the Haiku project, a collaboration between Canadian scientists and CERN, scheduled to start sometime between 27, 2027 and 2036. And this aims to create an anti-atomic an anti-atomic but producing anti-atoms fountain, which would allow the team to shoot large quantities of anti-atoms into free space to see how they fall. And so again, this is all trying to figure out more about antimatter. And so speaking of cooling things to near absolute zero. In 2010, researchers led by Martin Weitz at the University of Bonn created a new kind of observed matter, a single superphoton constructed from thousands of individual photons, which in turn represented a completely new light source called an optical Bose-Einstein condensate. So just as a refresher, a Bose-Einstein condensate is a state of matter which is formed when atoms or atomic particles are cooled to almost absolute zero and thus have basically no free energy. The atoms or atomic particles then start to act as one superatom or particle, like the superphoton. It can be described by a single wave function, meaning that the atoms or particles all share the same energy state. To create the superproton, physicists trapped light particles in a resonator composed of two curved mirrors, which are placed just over a micrometer apart in order to reflect a beam of light back and forth rapidly. In order to cool down the photons, the space between the mirrors is filled with a liquid dye solution. The dye molecules quote-unquote swallow the photons and then release them bringing the temperature of the photons down to the temperature of the dye solution, basically room temperature. It's able to do this because the natural characteristic of the photon is to dissolve when cooled. The photons engage in a phase transition between the oscillating phase, created by the semi-translucent mirrors causing photons to be lost and replaced, and thus creating a non-equilibrium that results in a system which does not have a definite temperature, thus creating an oscillation, and a dampened phase where the amplitude of the vibration decreases. The overdamped phase we observed 
corresponds to a new state of the light field, so to speak, said lead author Fari Emre Ozturk, a doctoral student at the Institute for Applied Physics at the University of Bonn. This is a, this is special because the effects of the laser is not are not usually separated from that of Bose-Einstein condensate by a phase transition, and there is no definite boundary between the two phases. So this allowed the physicist to continually move back and forth between effects. However, in our experiment, the overdamped state of the optical Bose-Einstein condensate is separated by a phase transition from both the oscillating state and a standard laser, said study lead leader Dr. Martin Weitz. This shows that there is a Bose-Einstein condensate, which is really a different state than that of the standard laser. In other words, we are dealing with two separate phases of the optical Bose-Einstein condensate. And so this isn't just an int- just interesting as a matter of physics. It may also have practical applications. The researchers plan to further study um, further studies to search for new states of light field in multiple coupled light condensates, which can occur in the system. If suitable quantum mechanically entangled states occur in coupled light condensates, this may be interesting for transmitting quantum encrypted messages between multiple participants, said Ozturk. In other words, this research could be used to create the uh, next and better uh, quantum computer rather than a monster. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. The political climate of today's world is extremely polarized, and nuanced conversations are dead. And I shouldn't have to say this, the bi-weekly chaotic good podcast, well, all of those things are still true. Co-hosts Nicole and Janma do their very best to hold honest conversations about everything political, from art to policy, finance, and electoral strategy, with humor and humility, from a couple of opinionated leftists dead set on creating a better world and fighting misinformation wherever and from whoever it crops up from. Search for I Shouldn't Have to Say This on your favorite podcast listening app, or you can visit saythiscast.com. I Shouldn't Have to Say This is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network.